Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Fatal Feuds Part 1, The Rise of the Red Earl. Today's show is the first of a four-part series that returns to the Middle Ages and looks at one of the most lethal feuds in Irish history. This episode sets the stage, introducing the main characters and bringing you into the front lines of the early battles. So, with no more delay, let's get on with it. Rudland Castle in North Wales at Christmas 1283 was not exactly the location the 24-year-old Richard de Burgh would have chosen for his investiture as a knight, an important and normally momentous occasion for a man in the Middle Ages. It would be a trial of endurance at Rudland in winter. That the castle was safe was undeniable. Stone towers soared above two massive defensive walls, its gatehouse a terrifying gauntlet where death could be rained down on any unwelcome guest, but it was the climate of the surrounding countryside of North Wales that was the challenge. The wind howled down the valley of the cleared river, bringing with it freezing rain, sleet and snow from the mountains of Snowdonia and dumping them on the formidable walls of Rudlin. The biting wind penetrated through every arrow loop, window and imperfection in the stone walls. It was in these draughty, freezing conditions that Richard de Burgh's ritual began with a bath the night before the ceremony itself. While the freezing draughts picked at his naked body, the hardest part of the ritual lay ahead of him. In accordance with time-modern customs, he would have to maintain a vigil in the biting cold through the hours of darkness at Rudland before the official ceremony took place the following day. While this made Rudland a less than ideal location for his investiture, the castle nevertheless did represent an important period of Richard de Burgh's life. The North Wales valleys, hills and mountains that surrounded Rudland had become something of a second home for him in previous years. 
It was there he had strengthened his relationship with King Edward I. These valleys had been the battlefields where King Edward had waged a brutal war of conquest against the incalcitrant king of the Welsh, Llewellyn ap Griffith. But by Christmas 1283, that war seemed as good as done. A year previously, the decisive moment had come when Llewellyn had been surrounded, killed and mutilated by Edward's soldiers and his posthumous nickname, Llewellyn the Last, symbolised the vanquished hopes of the Welsh. It had been a time of violence, war and brutality for sure, but nevertheless it had also been a time when bonds that lasted a lifetime had been forged. When Richard had returned a year later with the royal court and found out it was here he would be knighted by the king himself, there was something apt that this location would host such an important event in his life. However, as darkness fell over the snow-crowned mountains that flanked Rudland Castle and Richard de Burgh began his all-night vigil, his mind undoubtedly drifted far from Welsh uprisings or Llewellyn the Last. Even if most at the English court, including Edward I, had scarcely more than a passing interest in Ireland, it dominated Richard de Burgh's thoughts. By 1283, though not yet even a knight, Richard de Burgh was no ordinary man. Indeed, he already had a reputation that preceded him. Known as the Red Earl for a reason never recorded, he was in fact the Earl of Ulster and Lord of Connacht. These vast holdings placed millions of acres of land, more or less half the Norman colony of Ireland, under his control. His vassals included lords and barons and some of the most famous families in Ireland. The Demandevilles of Ulster and the Fitzgeralds of Connacht were just some of those who owed him their allegiance. Then there were the Gaelic Irish kings, the O'Neills of the North and the O'Connors of the West, also supposedly at least owed him their allegiance and would fight for him if called upon. While Ulster and Connacht were potentially one of the most lucrative territories in King Edward I's kingdom, it was also something of a poison chalice. Ireland, in a word, was lethal, and Richard de Burgh's family were not short of enemies. Many of his vassals had a less than friendly attitude towards the de Burghs, while the O'Neills, O'Connors and other Gaelic Irish families were often openly hostile. In those hours of darkness at Rudland, Richard undoubtedly thought about the problems he would face when he eventually took up residence in Ireland. He did have a limited experience of the island, but one that illustrated just some of the complexities he would face. Not long after the king had given him his late father's lands and titles in 1281, Richard had crossed the Irish Sea and travelled to Ulster for a few months before returning to the royal court in England. There he had quickly learned that while he may have had huge lands and numerous vassals, ruling over them was less than easy. When his father Walter had died in 1271, the family had been leaderless and vulnerable. It didn't take long before their enemies in Ireland circled. Within a year, the de Burgh's arch-rivals, the Fitzgerald family, had struck. Morris Fitzgerald had been appointed just this year, that's the King's representative in Ireland, and he had used the office to do what damage he could to the de Burgh family. He had stripped Richard's mother of lands left to her, he had also taken the lands of the de Burgh's chief supporters, the de Mandevilles, as well. This caused ructions in Ulster. 
the de Mandevilles launched a private war against those who sided with the Fitzgeralds, and in particular William Fitzwarren. While the conflict was limited to Antrim, five villages, numerous mills and huge amounts of wheat were destroyed around Carrickfergus, the most important settlement in Ulster at the time. When Richard de Burgh had temporarily come to Ulster in 1281, he had found his chief allies, the de Mandevilles, completely sidelined. Immediately he acted to reverse the situation, appointing Thomas de Mandeville his representative in the region. He then harshly punished those who had taken advantage of his family's misfortune after his father's death. He had stripped William Fitzwarren of his lands and in late October 1281 even led a direct assault on Fitzwarren's castle, taking property and goods. Now eventually this feud between Richard and his vassals was brought to an end when a marriage was arranged between the Fitzwarrens and the de Mandevilles. However, this underlined just how volatile Ireland could be. The Fitzgeralds had been easily able to spark a war between his vassals, and this was just the tip of the iceberg. Nearly every corner of his estates was riven with disputes of one kind or another. It was clearly a hard road ahead of him if he was going to establish control over Ulster and Connacht. And if he made any mistakes, the Fitzgerald family were always waiting to take advantage. Back in Rudlin in that winter of 1283, Richard could do little but ponder about these problems though. He would need to spend time in Ireland to establish control there. However, as his vigil came to an end, as darkness faded and daylight broke over Snowdonia, these worries about Ireland faded Ahead of him was a momentous occasion, his investiture as a knight. Presumably, chronically tired, having been awake all through the previous night, Richard de Burgh was brought before the king after his vigil. In an elaborate ceremony, he knelt before his monarch. A giant of a man, known as Longshanks in reference to his long legs, Edward I towered over the kneeling Richard. At the climax of the ceremony, the king took a sword and, touching Richard de Burgh on each shoulder, he raised him up a knight. While this was an important ritual, it undoubtedly further cemented the relationship between Richard de Burgh and his king. This was important. In the coming years, when he would return to Ireland, Richard would be far from court, unable to influence King Edward directly, and he would rely on the old friendship between the two men. What limited comfort Rudland Castle had offered in the depths of that winter was soon no more than a memory when the royal court took to the road, travelling northwards towards Yorkshire in early 1284. Over the following 18 months, Richard de Burgh spent much of his time still at court, travelling from castle to castle and town to town, but never nearer to Ireland. While establishing control over his lands on the island had to wait, he and his wife, Margaret de Guinness, progressed with the all-important matter of raising a family, a crucial step for any aspiring nobleman. While they needed a male heir, which Margaret had in 1285, a boy, Walter, named after Richard's father, they also needed daughters. By that same year of 1285, she had given birth to three girls, Aveline, Eleanor and Elizabeth. While their brother could hope to be the next Earl of Ulster and Lord of Connacht, they would be forced to do their duty for their family by cementing alliances 
through marriage. This could happen at any age. Indeed, by 1285, negotiations regarding the marriage of King Edward I's three-year-old daughter Elizabeth were already underway. While their life in England was one of comparative luxury, this all changed when Richard de Burgh, his wife and family finally crossed the Irish Sea in 1285 to take up permanent residence on their estates in Ireland. What would prove to be an endless power struggle became part of their day-to-day life. Indeed, from 1285 onwards, year after year, Richard de Burgh would spend weeks and months of his life in the saddle with an army at his back and enemies facing him. On arriving in Ireland, Richard de Burgh was under no illusion of the enemies he faced. While feuds had been part and parcel of life since the Norman colony of Ireland had been founded during the invasion of Ireland in 1170, the dispute between his family and the Fitzgeralds was becoming legendary. In 1264 it had broken out into all-out war and, as we have seen in 1281, the Fitzgeralds had been the source of the problems that beset Richard's land in Ulster. However, when he arrived in Ireland, it was his relationship with the Gaelic Irish that took up much of Richard's time. Indeed, while the Fitzgeralds could destroy land and property, it was the Gaelic Irish who were the most likely to kill him. Relations with the Gaelic Irish were unlike anything most of Richard de Burgh's peers at the royal court could understand. The sheer brutality, ferocity and ruthlessness of these campaigns were hair-raising. Even the most battle-hardened Norman lords in England would flinch at some of the acts of barbarism that were a feature of warfare in Ireland. In 1287, not that long after Richard had arrived in Ireland, the de Clare family perpetrated one of the most heinous acts of the age when they double-crossed a Gaelic-Irish ally of theirs. No longer having any use for Brian O'Brien, they had him pulled apart between two horses, decapitated and then hung upside down from a beam, his decomposing corpse a testimony to the nature of warfare that lay ahead for Richard. Even the church was little by way of a mediating influence. In 1282, the Bishop of Waterford, Stephen de Fulburn, then acting as a royal official, had organised the treacherous assassination of two MacMurrah brothers in Arco, despite bringing them there under the flag of truce. While these incidents may have shocked many, Richard de Burgh did have some understanding of the nature of warfare in Ireland in the late 13th century. One incident in particular haunted his family. In 1270, his father Walter and his uncle, William Og, or William the Younger, had been at war with the O'Connors, the leading Gaelic-Irish family in Connacht. When the opposing armies met at a crossing point on the River Shannon at a place known as Kip, the Normans, facing superior numbers, began to negotiate. According to custom, high-ranking prisoners were exchanged to ensure good faith in the negotiations. On the de Burgh side, William the Younger, this was Richard's uncle, was handed over to the O'Connors. However, in the tense situation, something went awry and the O'Connors double-crossed the de Burghs. Violence broke out and battle was joined. By the day's end, the River Shannon ran red with Norman blood. And in an event that the de Burghs would never forget and probably never forgive, the man who had willingly handed himself over as a hostage, William the Younger, Richard's uncle, was executed. 
That said, these acts of barbarism and treachery were matched by alliances and this made relations with the Gaelic Irish a complex web of violence and friendship. Indeed, in better times, a bizarre ritual had seen Richard's father Walter and A. O'Connor, the king of the O'Connor family, share a bed in a symbolic act to illustrate their trust and lack of enmity. Intermarriage was also common. Richard's own cousin, Eleanor Nangle, was married to one of the most powerful Gaelic Irish families in Ulster, the O'Neills. Her husband, A. Bui, was the king and the marriage was designed to guarantee the allegiance of the wider O'Neill family to the de Burghs. Indeed, it was that allegiance of the O'Neill family that was the source of some of Richard's earliest campaigns in Ireland. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Abe Wee O'Neill ruled over the O'Neill family successfully for many years. He remained faithful to the de Burghs, a loyalty that had been copper-fastened by his marriage to Richard's relative, Eleanor de Nangle. This secured peace in Ulster. The Norman colonial areas in the east of the region were free from raids from the O'Neill territories of Tyrone in the west of Ulster. This all changed, however, in 1283, when Abe was killed in battle, fighting a Gaelic Irish rival. His death led to some very concerning developments for the de Burghs and indeed all Norman colonists in Ulster. Abwy was not succeeded by his son, but instead by another member of the O'Neill family, a man called Donal O'Neill. Donal O'Neill was a name that struck terror into the Normans. He needed little by way of introduction. His father was notorious. As a generation earlier, he had launched a full-scale Gaelic invasion of the Norman colony in Ulster. It was only after a desperate battle fought at Downpatrick that the colonists had survived. This new king, Donal, was every bit his father's son in terms of politics and outlook on life. So it was that not long after arriving in Ireland, Richard de Burgh, known across Ireland now as the Red Earl, set about dealing with Don O'Neill before he could launch an attack on the Normans. Gathering forces from across the Lordship of Connacht, the Red Earl invaded the territory of the O'Neills with one plan, 
to bring down Donal O'Neill and replace him with a candidate more in line with de Burgh interests. Crossing from Norman territory into Tyrone, the heartland of O'Neill power, was unsettling. Indeed, Richard de Burgh was entering a different and deceptive world. Life couldn't get more different than it had been at the royal court. The realm of the O'Neills had no castles. Fortifications were built largely from earth and timber, and in some cases stone. Houses were generally far smaller and more basic as well. However, to dismiss a society based on this was foolhardy. The O'Neills had long proven themselves able to stand up to the Normans. Furthermore, the politics of the O'Neill lands were incredibly complex. The family was divided between two factions, one who supported peaceful relations with the Normans, while another, led by Donal, advocated resistance. In 1285, the leading figure of those supportive of peaceful relations with the Normans was Niall Coulonach O'Neill. He quickly made common cause with Richard de Burgh, and after they agreed terms of allegiance, they set about making Niall Coulonach king. They marched on Don O'Neill and with some ease were able to install Niall as king. However, as the Red Earl left the O'Neill lands that year, he must have known this was only a temporary solution. He knew that out there somewhere in the hills of Tyrone was Don O'Neill, just waiting for his next chance. Once the Red Earl was gone, he would plot and scheme to take back the kingship. Somewhat surprisingly, four years came and went before the inevitable occurred and the man the Red Earl had installed as king, Niall Coulonach, arrived in Norman Ulster with bad news. Donal O'Neill had returned, invading Tyrone with an army, and had deposed Niall. For Richard, this man Donal could not be allowed to take power. He would go to war with the Normans. It was only a matter of time. So, the following year of 1291, Richard de Burgh marched north into the heart of O'Neill territory again and the campaign of 1286 was repeated action for action. Donal was deposed, Niall was installed as king but crucially Donal O'Neill was not caught or killed. Rather than the gallows he escaped to fight another day. Without doubt that year it was increasingly clear for the Red Earl there was only one solution. Donal O'Neill had to die. Indeed, as if to reinforce this point, as the Red Earl retreated from Tyrone, Donal plunged the entire region into chaos when he made yet another play for power. On this occasion, his defiance increased when he not only deposed de Burgh's candidate Niall Coulonach, but also killed him. So it was that Richard had to return, and on this occasion he installed yet another O'Neill king. This man, was in fact his own distant relation, the son of his cousin, Eleanor Denangle, who had been married into the O'Neill family. While this man was undoubtedly going to be loyal to the Red Earl, who was his cousin after all, the rebel, Donal O'Neill, escaped yet again. It was clear that the Red Earl needed rid of this constant thorn in his side. However, he had other concerns outside Ulster, and a manhunt for Donal O'Neill in the wilds of Tyrone and Donegal was simply impossible particularly because he was increasingly drawn into another conflict, one in the west of Ireland, in his lordship of Connacht. However, while he increasingly turned his thoughts towards the west, he, and indeed everyone knew, that this man, Donal O'Neill, would return.
The Lordship of Connacht was, in many ways, the most important of the de Burgh lands. While the Earldom of Ulster had been given to the family in the 1260s, the Red Earl's grandfather, another Richard de Burgh, had conquered Connacht from the O'Connors in 1235. While they dominated the region, the de Burghs had never truly defeated the O'Connors. This was something that the Red Earl knew only too well from the Battle of Ahonkip, where his uncle, William the Younger, had been executed. Controlling the O'Connors was always going to be a crucial part of his dominance in the west of Ireland. If he failed to do this, he would fail to control Connacht. Basically, the O'Connors could be great allies or terrible, terrible enemies. In 1286, when he had to intervene in Ulster, the Red Earl was also presented with a very rare opportunity when Morris Fitzgerald, the patriarch of the rival Fitzgerald family, died. Now they had lands around Sligo in Connacht and were technically Richard's vassals, but in reality, as events have shown, they were his rivals. They had their own alliances with Gaelic Irish families in the West and these alliances were not necessarily in the interest of the de Burghs. So when Morris Fitzgerald died in 1286, the Red Earl took full advantage of the situation and set about making himself the absolute lord of the West. He forged alliances with pretty much all Gaelic Irish families in the region, knowing the Fitzgeralds would be in no position to counter his moves. These alliances he forged were by no means mutual though, but instead were done at the point of a sword. Richard displayed utter ruthlessness in bringing the Gaelic Irish families of the West to heel. According to the Annals of Connacht, he despoiled many churches and monasteries in this campaign. What opposition there was melted away and the annals record that he took submission and hostages all across the region. These included hostages from the all-important O'Connor family. While this campaign in Connacht in 1286 certainly established his reputation as a ruthless individual, the Red Earl no doubt knew that these alliances in the West were shaky to say the least. In a similar way to the O'Neills in Ulster, there were numerous contending factions in the O'Connor family and in 1288, the king who had submitted to the Red Earl was deposed by his brother, Magnus O'Connor. Now, as we might expect, Richard de Burgh geared up for war. He saw himself as a kingmaker of Connacht. He would not allow some unknown quantity like Magnus O'Connor depose a man who had submitted to him. However, his intervention didn't go to plan. When Richard tracked down Magnus O'Connor, he found the new king of the O'Connors was not alone. Not only was his own vassal, John Fitzthomas Fitzgerald, supporting Magnus, but so too were royal officials. In a deeply humiliating act, Richard had to withdraw and Magnus O'Connor survived. However, John Fitzthomas Fitzgerald's presence there was the most worrying thing. If Magnus O'Connor was alone, the Red Earl could easily have dealt with him but John Fitzthomas Fitzgerald was clearly staking out his position as a rival to the Red Earl. He was not only emerging as the new leader of the wider Fitzgerald family, but he was also clearly standing up to his overlord. This did not bode well, particularly given John Fitzthomas's history. Fitzthomas had for a long part of his life seemed destined for obscurity as the heir of a relatively minor branch of the Fitzgerald family. However, a bizarre series of deaths and childless marriages had seen him inherit the lordship of Offaly and large tracts of land in Connacht. 
This surprising advancement made him utterly ruthless in his willingness not only to defend his gains, but also to build on them. The man had boundless ambition, and he sure as hell would not bow his head to someone like Richard de Burgh, a figure hated in the Fitzgerald family. He increasingly began to build up alliances across Ireland, and in 1289 he secured the allegiance of Peter de Birmingham, the thoroughly violent and ruthless lord of Tethmoy in the Midlands. After Fitzthomas had forced Richard de Burgh to withdraw from the attack on Magnus O'Connor, it was clear that tensions were rising in the west of Ireland. When the kingship of the O'Connors became vacant again, as it would soon enough, this would make for a very volatile situation, as both the Red Earl and John Fitzthomas would want their candidate to take power. War was clearly on the way. Events in the west of Ireland began to change in 1290 with the appointment of a new king's representative. This new justiciar was a man called William de Vesey, the Lord of Kildare. This swung events in favour of Richard de Burgh as de Vesey loathed John Fitzthomas as well. With lands in Kildare, Fitzthomas's ambitions in the Midlands threatened de Vesey. This led to Fitzthomas feeling increasingly cornered and the outcome was predictable. The crunch moment came in 1293 when the King of the O'Connors, Magnus O'Connor, died. The question on everyone's lips now was who would replace him. For the Red Earl, it was essential that it was a candidate of his choosing, or at least one that would bend to his will. For John Fitzthomas, he obviously saw the issue in exactly the same way. Ultimately, it was William de Vesey, the King's representative, who intervened and predictably he installed a candidate that suited Richard de Burgh. This was A. O'Connor. John Fitzthomas was absolutely furious at this, and he decided the time had come to launch open resistance. Ten days later, he seized A. O'Connor and imprisoned him, and replaced him with a candidate of his own choosing. However, this man lasted scarcely three months before he was assassinated, under immense pressure, Fitzthomas eventually would release A. O'Connor, who was now reinstated. But by the early summer of 1294, the situation in the west of Ireland was explosive, and it was only about to get worse. The Red Earl and his cousin, William Leah de Burgh, now decided they would make their play for power. While they couldn't be seen to do it for themselves, they encouraged A. O'Connor, the new king of the O'Connors, to openly attack John Fitzthomas, which he did by destroying Sligo Castle. This was a clear, open message to Fitzthomas. He wasn't welcome in the west of Ireland. However, as we've seen, given the type of man John Fitzthomas was, he wasn't going to back down. But he did face a problem. With war on the way, the de Burghs could put huge numbers into the field. If needed, the Red Earl could call on his vassals from Ulster, while his supporters from Connacht, led by William Leah de Burgh, not to mention the O'Connors, now led by A. O'Connor, would also take the field under his banners as well. It was clear John Fitzthomas needed a plan, some way to balance the situation out, and what he came up with was certainly brave and bold. It began with a raid on December the 9th, 1294. Scarcely anyone would have raised an eyebrow at yet another attack in Ireland. However, Fitzthomas and his men 
took a very valuable prize on this occasion. After this attack, the raiders rode hard for the Barrow Valley, no doubt only stopping when needed. Once word spread of what they had done, there would be men hunting them. If they were caught, they would probably die. Eventually, crossing into the safety of Fitzthomas's territory in the Lordship of Ossery, they followed the Barrow River to its headwaters until they reached the enormous fortress of Lee Castle. As the raiding party entered the castle, apprehension can only have been the prevailing mood. From lowly servants to Fitzthomas's own retainers, everyone knew their lord had pulled off a spectacular raid, one unparalleled in medieval history, but one with serious consequences. As they climbed down from their horses in the castle courtyard, they brought their valuable prize with them. It came in the form of two prisoners. John Fitzthomas had just taken captive the Red Earl of Ulster and his cousin, William Leah de Burgh. This clearly meant war, but Fitzthomas had somewhat evened the playing field. Tune in next time for part two of Fatal Feuds as Ireland reels from John Fitzthomas's daring kidnapping of the Red Earl. If you enjoy this type of history, you will love my latest book, 1348 A Medieval Apocalypse, The Black Death in Ireland. You can get the book in a special hardback edition and audiobook at my website irishhistorypodcast.ie or in ebook format on Amazon. 1348 A Medieval Apocalypse tells the story of the next generation of these same families, the de Burghs and the Fitzgeralds, and it's a perfect follow-on from this podcast. You can get your copy today by going to irishhistorypodcast.ie That's irishhistorypodcast.ie If you purchase the audiobook, you can use the coupon code LISTENER and get a 20% discount. So why not go now to irishhistorypodcast.ie and use that coupon code LISTENER and get your audiobook today. Finally, I just want to acknowledge the music used in today's show. It's royalty-free music created by the artists Clankbeld, Meerkunst and Setunaman. Until next time, Slán. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.